Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer on the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Relax while we beam down fantastic science right into your brain. I'm Victoria Bond. On this edition, we will feature glow-in-the-dark sperm, X-woman, and man flu. But first up, here's the news with Ian Wolfe, Aaron Cook, and Mark West. <laughs> The UK Daily Mail have an article that man flu has been proved to be real. Now, if you don't live in the UK and you don't live in Australia, you may not have heard of man flu. Man flu is an accusation that men go around having colds or headaches and claiming that they're flus and migraines, that they're all big sooks. Now, the research came out last year and the UK Daily Mail recent article is one of many that's gone on to this, and they're saying that there's a reason for it. It's real. In fact, the headline is that man flu isn't his fault. It's because he's so macho. So he's a big sook because he's macho. And their reasoning is that men have worse immune systems due to higher priority to get back out and compete rather than take time to recover. So flu and other infections actually are worse. Now, it sounds pretty bogus to me. I mean, this is a case of evolutionary explanation without any actual facts. And of course, if you go back to the actual study in 2009, it has nothing to do with humans or the flu. It was, in fact, bacterial infection in mice that were genetically modified. So let's look at the theory anyway. Now, instead of stereotyping all men as reporting flu for a cold and then staying in bed unnecessarily, the exact same hypothesis could say that men are correctly reporting the flu and staying in bed because they have no choice. After all, they want to return to compete as soon as possible, you say. Women in this model are at fault for reporting flu instead of a cold and then bragging about how well they're coping with the symptoms, when real flu will disable anyone. So the same logic could make men the villain or women the villain and it's all about bragging or complaining, and it's all a bunch of nonsense, I think. What do you guys think? Well, I mean, couldn't there be, before discounting all of the science behind the article, it is true that women are much more likely to have autoimmune diseases and um, have generally much more robust immune systems. Don't those two things contradict? No, because their immune systems are overactive, they tend to get more autoimmune diseases where their immune cells start attacking their own body. So, I mean, maybe, and, and that's uh, also explained evolutionarily in terms of women need to have really good immune systems to, um, you know, have healthy pregnancies. Yes. So that could explain why women recover better from the flu, perhaps, but that's not at all a scientific no, <laughs> observation. No, no, it, it's plausible, but <laughs> there's no science there yet. Oh, amazingly, man flu seems to hit me when I need a day off work, <laughs> essentially. Although there's no tick box on my sick leave for man flu. Mm. X-woman has been discovered in Asia. 
Paleontologists have sequenced mitochondrial DNA from fossil bones from a woman from 30,000 to 50,000 years ago. They've found that she was from a species of human that diverged from Neanderthals and modern humans about a million years ago. By comparison, Neanderthals and modern humans diverged about 500,000 years ago. It's known that our Homo sapiens species coexisted with Neanderthals for at least 10,000 years, and now it looks like they both coexisted with ex-woman species of humans. Professor Clive Finlayson, director of the Gibraltar Museum, says that in the late Pleistocene era, there were likely many different species of humans spread over Africa, Eurasia and Oceania. The Pleistocene era ended 12,000 years ago. It's possible that perhaps fairy tales and myths of many different species of people have been more than just metaphors. Recently, the Clay Mathematics Institute announced that Gregory Perelman has won the Millennium Prize for his proof of the century-old Poincaré conjecture. And almost as soon as it was announced, the speculation began as to whether Perelman would accept the prize and the $1 million of prize money. The Poincaré conjecture is a question essentially about the nature of shapes in space. Mathematicians have long understood the nature of every possible 2D surface in 3D space. For example, the surface of a sphere, such as the outside of a ball, is completely characterised by being simply connected. That is, it has no edge, and any loop on the surface can be slid off without being cut or torn. And these two properties are true, no matter how much a sphere is squashed or stretched out of shape. However, they aren't true for any other kind of 2D surface, for example the surface of a donut. A loop through the centre hole of a donut can't be removed, without being cut. And that is because a donut is not the same, topologically speaking, as a sphere. Poincaré proposed that all 3D spheres can be characterised by the same two properties. However, for over a century, the result remained unproven despite the efforts of some of the best mathematical minds. The problem was seen as so important that it was included in the list of seven millennium problems chosen by the Clay Institute in 2000. The solution to any of these millennium problems would be a monumental advancement in mathematics, and the Clay Institute offered a prize of one million US dollars for the solution of each. In 2003, Perelman surprised the mathematical world by posting a proof of a much wider conjecture online. He claimed to have proved Thurston's geometrization conjecture that characterised every 3D surface. The Poincaré conjecture would be proven true as a consequence of this wider result. After much examination, discussion and exposition, the mathematical community accepted that Perelman had proved the Poincaré conjecture, and he was awarded the Fields Medal in 2006, the highest prize in mathematics, and many people call it the Nobel Prize of Maths. Controversially, Perelman declined to accept the prize, the first person ever to do so. He withdrew from mathematics and now lives a reclusive life in the outskirts of St. Petersburg. Now that Perelman's work has survived several years of critical review and has been accepted by the mathematical world, the Clay Institute has awarded him the Millennium Prize for his proof. And this is the first of the Millennium Problems to be solved. However, most people in the mathematical community accept, expect that, like the Fields Medal, Perelman will not accept this prize or the prize money. Despite some reports in the media, the Clay Institute has said that they have been in contact with Perelman and that he said he had to think about it. So would you guys take the money if it was offered to you? Well, I mean, he's been, he's been quoted to say in the past, I have all I want. And he's also said um, that he's not interested in money or fame. And what I'd heard was that the, um, 
the Clay Institute had offered instead to donate the million dollars to Russian charities? I'd heard that he was emotionally ill, that his friends and family and colleagues, um, you know, said he was a recluse, he was at home, and that he didn't even take the money for the flight uh, because he didn't want to leave home. In which case, um, maybe they need to help him with the money. Yeah, maybe they could think of something to do with the money. Hmm. Mm. He's also said, um, I don't want to be on display like an animal in a zoo. I'm not a hero of mathematics. I'm not even that successful. And that's why I don't want to have everyone looking at me. Well, he's arguably got more fame out of this uh, in the in the general community by uh, saying no to the money than he would have um, that's right. otherwise, which is, which is some irony, I guess. It's a sad irony. It's a sad irony. But mm-hmm. I, can, I certainly remember when he rejected the Fields Medal back in 2006. I think we reported on it here. Uh, Correct me if I'm wrong, I don't remember reporting on the 07, 08 or 09 Fields medals. So this is a, you know, it's famous for all the wrong reasons, I guess. Listening to Diffusion Science Radio, diffusion at 2ser.com, brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast from www.diffusionradio.com. The humble fruit fly, otherwise known as Drosophila melanogaster, has been subjected to all kinds of indignities in the name of science. Now, researchers have bred fruit flies with glow in the dark sperm. Aaron Cook called Scott Pitnick at Syracuse University to find out why. Good evening, Scott. Welcome to Diffusion. Thanks for taking the time to speak with us tonight. Pleasure to be here. You've managed to breed fruit flies with glow-in-the-dark sperm. What on earth for? Um, So that teenage boys no longer need nightlights is the most common guess that I'm I'm hearing. (laughs) Actually, so we can see events that take place inside the female reproductive tract, which has really been a black box for many fields of biology. And for us as evolutionary reproductive biologists and interested in how competition among males for fertilization plays out, as well as to events that occur between insemination and fertilization that are important for understanding how speciation works, those are events that have just remained a real mystery. We've had no insights into those mechanisms, and this seemed like the best possible solution to actually directly observe how things work. And how did you make these glow-in-the-dark sperm? Um, This is actually something that's become quite routine, sort of the the kind of mad scientist genetics that you can do with model system like Drosophila melanogaster. And so it's creating a genetic engineering using cloning and a genetic 
vectoring system where you're engineering your little bits of DNA and then we micro-inject those into fly eggs, into embryos, and hope that the new genetic material gets incorporated into the germline. And once it does, it becomes a part of the genome that gets passed on, becomes heritable generation in and generation out. So once we get this to work, we inject a lot of eggs, we rear those larvae up into flies, and we examine them all, hoping that one of them will have glowing sperm, that it will have worked, and that we've tagged the protein that we're after. In this case, it's a specific thing that's found in the sperm heads only. Once it's worked, then we mate those flies to other flies and create a stable population. And can you have all the colors of the rainbow? No, there are limits. There's a few, and green fluorescent protein is the one that's typically used. The gene originally was taken out of a jellyfish that's bioluminescent, that naturally fluoresces, and that is now used in this kind of genetic engineering in all kinds of organisms. They make whole mice that fluoresce green. So it's a common tool that's used if you want to track specific proteins and see when and where they're expressed. Whenever they're expressed, you'll get a fluorescent signal being given off by those cells. Okay. With the fruit fly, what did you find when you examined these glow-in-the-dark sperm? The trick for us is that sperm are very small, and the female reproductive tract is an environment that's not easy to observe events taking place in. But for us, being instant sperm evolution, and sperm, by the way, are the most rapidly evolving cell type there is. Incredible differences in what they look like between even closely related species. And if you want to understand that diversity, you have to understand the selective environment that's driving this evolution, and that's the female reproductive tract. It's a difficult environment to observe events taking place And then on top of that, we know that the most important event driving sperm evolution is competition among different males because females of most species are promiscuous. They mate with multiple males. And so sperm overlap within female tracts. And it's that competition and these complex interactions between sperm and the female tract that determine winners and losers that's very important to the stuff that we're interested in. And so there's an additional problem there. Even if you could get an eye into the female tract, you can't tell one male sperm from another. So by by tagging these sperm fluorescent green and fluorescent red, we can directly observe in real time what sperm are doing inside the female tract with the right tools, the right microscopes and so forth. We were shocked, first of all, just to find that sperm are incredibly active. Watching these things without these fluorescent stains, we always presumed that the heads kind of stayed still, but they were wagging their tails all the time. We knew they were active but we didn't realize that they were actually on the go, constantly moving, highly mobile, moving through these complex female sperm storage organs. They never stop. And then on top of that, we were stunned at how complex sperm behavior is. They actually have a large behavioral repertoire and do surprisingly complex things. There's social interactions that cause them to swim in spirals and all sort of unexpected fluid flow dynamics and and that sort of thing. So this is really an open window for us to start studying the behavioral ecology of sperm, which has never been possible before. What, What we published in this paper was we were able to really detail the mechanisms by which all these events by which sperm interact with one another and interact with the female reproductive tract that determine paternity when males are competing. So how are the sperm competing? So there's a few things that that we found, and one is that early in copulations, it's probably after five to ten minutes before he really transfers any sperm. Early in copulation, the female releases a good chunk of the first male sperm, which they have specialized sperm storage organs that they're able to keep sperm viable in for long periods of time, for weeks. Some organisms and ants, a female can store sperm and keep it viable for 20 years. And this is typical 
in most organisms, females have specialized sperm storage organs. In this case, early in copulation, the female is triggered to release some proportion of this first male sperm from her organs. The organs are sort of a sanctuary where they're protected. In this case, she's triggered to release them. Now, that may be triggered by the mechanics of the male copulating with her, or it's likely as it's due to chemicals that the male transfers in semen. They start to transfer seminal plasma before they transfer sperm. And semen in Drosophila is a really complex cocktail. And these proteins that males transfer attach to receptors and do all kinds of things inside the female. For example, one specific protein that's contained in the male ejaculate crosses the female reproductive tract within just a few minutes, targets her central nervous system, it attaches to receptors on her brain, and acts as an anti-aphrodisiac that makes her unreceptive to other males' courtship, so she's less likely to remate, so his sperm don't have to compete. So there's this war on. I don't know if many females would be happy to hear that sort of thing. <laughs> females, in fact, would not be happy to hear about that. Human ejaculates are just as complex, by the way, and this kind of sexual conflict over paternity being a biochemical war where males transfer things that manipulate female reproduction in ways that benefit the males. This is going to generate counter-selection on females to evolve ways to denature these proteins or to change receptors or otherwise be resistant. And this sets up essentially an evolutionary arms race between males and females, this kind of sexual conflict that's going to drive probably a lot of the evolutionary change that we see. At any rate, it's likely that this early event of females releasing some resident sperm is triggered by chemicals that the male transfers early in copulation. Shortly thereafter, the male begins to transfer his own sperm to the female. These start to go into storage. The males actually transfer three or four times more sperm than the females can store. As these go into storage, the female storage organs are maybe going to be half empty because she's used a bunch of the first male sperm up in the preceding days to lay eggs. So at first, she's just going to top off those organs with second male sperm. Once they're full, sperm keep coming in. And as they're going in, sperm that are already in the organs get pushed out. So there's this sort of physical displacement. And so there's this cycle occurring of sperm coming in and sperm going out. But because there's so many more second male sperm in what's called the female's bursa, where the male ejaculates, that's providing the sink, the supply of, of sperm that are coming in. As this process of displacement proceeds, more and more first male sperm are going to be displaced. So the proportion of second male sperm within the storage organs steadily increases. This process stops by, by the fe a female action. What the female does is at some point, she punctuates this by actively ejecting the sperm mass from her reproductive tract. She gets rid of it. At that point, you know, we sort of think of the dust as having settled on sperm storage. And now you have a mix of it's mostly second male sperm, some first male sperm that are going to compete to fertilize eggs. And we were able to quantify how they get used. And it turns out that that becomes then what we call a fair raffle. Your probability of winning in fertilization is equal to the number of tickets you have for that lottery. So there they get used in equal proportion. And in fact, first male sperm do just as well as second male sperm, as that implies, which means first male sperm are not incapacitated or injured by the second male ejaculate, which was one prevailing hypothesis that was out there before we did this work. But they're just outnumbered. That's right. They're outnumbered when it comes to this dynamic process of sperm storage after remating. So from an um, evolutionary perspective, it's better to be second on the scene. Um, it, is, it is better to be second on the scene, just as one man's ceiling is another man's floor. I mean, you're, you're second in this competition, but at some point, a few days later, the female's going to remate to a third male. 
and then you're now on the defensive. Now you're playing sperm defense instead of offense. And so reproduction in flies and lots of other organisms where females multiply mate is a constant sort of three-way tug-of-war between a previous mate of a female, the, the recent mate of a female, and the female herself over their competing evolutionary interests. Are there any plans to do this for any other species? We actually have experiments in progress right now with several other species. So we've successfully transformed to create red and green sperm populations for, so far, three other species of Drosophila, which are interesting for various different reasons. And then we've also transformed the sperm of a flower beetle, Tribolium, that's used in a lot of biological research. We study very specific things, but I would expect for all manner of reproductive biology, we've just looked at the tip of the iceberg of what this approach will allow us to figure out. What is the significance for research into human reproduction? Will we ever get to a point where we're using this technique on on mammals? Yes, I think it definitely can be done with mice and so forth. Human research is a, a completely different ballgame ethically. I think where our results are directly applicable to humans, and this may sound a little bit nebulous, but what work on both mammals and fruit flies and other organisms have started to reveal a, a generalization, which is reproduction is very complicated. But what we're finding is that the outcome of fertilization Uh, does not depend on a simple thing like just the numbers of sperm that males transfer. In fact, there there are so many different working components. As I told you, there's very complex ejaculates, 112 proteins that do different things in just a fruit fly ejaculate. And there's all kinds of sperm components, both number and size and various other membrane bound proteins. There's all kinds of components of the female reproductive tract, secretory activity and epithelial cell interactions with sperm. There's all kinds of interactions, complex interactions that take place between sperm and the female reproductive tract that determine how well fertilization is going to go. And in the case of humans, you know, human infertility is a a, a big medical issue, a multi-billion dollar industry. My impression is that the lion's share of couples get diagnosed with unexplained infertility. And I think in a lot of these cases, there's just very complex interactions. We haven't begun to crack all that complexity and understand how things work. And so if we're going to solve those kinds of problems, we really have to understand the events that take place and all the mechanisms that go into determining how fertilization works. I think these kinds of approaches, just having this window into these events, is going to prove really informative. Excellent. Scott, thank you very much for your time today. Excellent to hear about how you created glow-in-the-dark sperm and what they've been used for. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. I appreciate your interest. That was Scott Picknick talking glow-in-the-dark sperm with Aaron Cook. Next up, does Facebook cause syphilis? Mark West with some details. Well, if you read the UK papers in the last week, you would be led to believe that uh, social networking, in particular Facebook, causes syphilis. A report in The Telegraph is a pretty good example of why journalists shouldn't report on science sometimes and uh, why correlation doesn't necessarily always equal causation. Uh, The report says that health experts have uh, said that Facebook has been linked to syphilis. The virus has increased fourfold in Sunderland, Durham and Teesside, the areas of Britain where Facebook is most popular, because it has given people a new way to meet multiple partners for casual sexual encounters. 
This sounds fair enough. Professor Peter Kelly, Director of Public Health in Teesside, said staff had found a link between social networking sites and the rise in cases, especially among young women. He said syphilis is a devastating disease. Anyone who has unprotected sex with casual partners is at high risk. There has been a fourfold increase in the number of syphilis cases detected, with more young women being affected. I don't get the names of the people affected, just figures, and I saw that several of the people had met sexual partners through these sites. Social networking sites are making it easier for people to meet up for casual sex. Now, if you actually look at his quote, and I found uh, the... I actually found the original press release from the NHS over there, and it doesn't mention a thing about social networking. And if you look at his quote, he in no way attributes the rise in syphilis to Facebook. It just says that social networking sites such as Facebook allow people to come together and they may have more casual sex. And through casual sex, there may be more, there may be a rise in syphilis. But one is not actually linked necessarily to the other. What do you guys think about this? That sounds like um, newsy science to me. <laughs> it sounds very newsy science. Um, it sounds like one of those things where they're saying, well, Facebook is social networking. Social networking can lead to people getting together. People getting together can lead to people having casual sex. Casual sex leads to syphilis. Therefore, and they draw this long bow that the first thing leads to the last thing. Hmm. And that's what it is. It's, it's, uh, there may be a correlation between the two, but uh, there's actually... There are other, there are more basic things that are linking the two. They're not actually causing each other. Mm. And uh, you know, the example of pirates being correlated to um, global warming, I think, would be oh, a fact. great example that's it. <laughs> of being careful of correlation yeah. in science. Well, Victoria, you actually know the way to check if someone's got syphilis. It's got nothing to do with checking if they've got a Facebook account. What do you do? Well, you, um, there's lots of ways to check for syphilis. You can take a cervical swab. Um, but back in the day, sailors used to um, get down on the docks and meet some young ladies and give her them a, a bit of a special handshake to see if the lady might or might not have syphilis. Um, I've actually demonstrated this in a video, which can be downloaded at www.diffusionradio.com. And that's all from us in this edition of Diffusion. If you'd like to contact us, if you have feedback, comments, suggestions, or wild, passionate praise, if you'd like to broadcast a story on Diffusion and hear your own voice passionately communicating science on radio, then send an email to diffusion at 2ser.com. Once again, that's diffusion at 2ser.com. Or subscribe to our podcast on our website, www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program were Aaron Cook, Ian Wolfe, Mark West, and Victoria Bond. Diffusion has been produced by Victoria Bond in the studios of 2SCR Sydney. Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. Join us next week inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering on Diffusion Science Radio.